Obviously, we're opening up our Bibles in English this morning, unless you grabbed the German hymnals. Uh, and so you may not be aware of this, but the book of Daniel is actually written in two languages that are not English. The first half, including our chapter we're reading this morning, is written in Aramaic, and the last half is written in Hebrew. It's a divided book. There are other places where we find Aramaic terms in Hebrew written books, and then there's a small portion of one other Bible book, Ezekiel, that is also in Aramaic. Um, in terms of provenance, where things come from, how they come to be, that makes perfect sense because Aramaic is this broad language of the Babylonian kingdom, and that's the setting this is being written in, but the Jews being Hebrews, you know, it makes sense where this comes from. But another thing that it points to is that the book of Daniel is a divided book. Uh, and we don't just see it in language, I think we also see it in personal familiarity with the book of Daniel. Uh, one of the things that I th find the most fascinating about this particular book of the Bible is if you grow up around church at all, you're really familiar with the first half. The youngest of the youngest know the stories of Daniel and the lion's den and the fiery furnace and these things. Uh, but the second half is like where angels fear to tread. It's this part of the book that, that nobody goes to. And when I prepare a sermon series, there's a handful of touchpoint churches and pastors and preachers that I go to look at just to see how they handle things. Uh, zero of that short list have taught through Daniel. Uh, and it's, this is the reason, because you've got, you've got the basic everybody knows on one hand, and then you've got this back half, this apocalyptic half, this Old Testament book of Revelation half, uh, which people don't want to go through. However, this chapter we get to today, this is where Jesus gets his own self-identification from. Over 80 times across the Gospels, we find the phrase, son of man. 79 plus, I said over 80, so all but one of those times is Jesus talking about himself. Okay, this is his preferred terminology. And we get it here from the second half of the book of Daniel. Uh, in fact, uh, Walverd, who's a conservative commentator, he, he titles his book on Daniel, The Key to Bible Prophecy. And so if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to start in Daniel. If you want to understand the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus talks about his disciples, about the destruction of Jerusalem, the things to come, you have to understand the book of Daniel. But there's a third reason why um, these things are awkward for us. It's not just because of the, um, the linguistics or, or the church culture side. Um, it's because we live in a time that is terribly uncomfortable with the idea of prophecy. Okay? Uh, the things we're going to read as we talk about the, the four beasts and the Roman Empire and the Antichrist and all of this stuff, uh, it's now become even in non-Christian circles in America, a bit passe, a bit unintelligent to talk about these things. Like, as soon as it's serialized as novels, you know, like the Tim LaHaye Left Behind books, it's relegated to being just, just what it sounds like, pulp fiction, okay? But here's the thing we gotta keep in mind. In the New Testament, we have 27 books, all but two of them all but two of them reference Jesus' return, what we call the second coming of Christ. The two that don't are both a paragraph long, okay? Uh, on top of that, it's referred to across the New Testament over 300 times, okay? And when you study this whole idea of a Jesus who's coming back, here's what you discover. It wasn't just a doctrine of the early church, it was a lens through which they viewed all doctrine. It, it changed who they were. It changed how they thought. When Jesus tells parables about his return, he contrasts the servant who forgets what's coming with the one who remembers. Remember, he says, a master goes away and here's a servant and he's faithful in doing his work and the other one is getting drunk and beating the servants and the end comes upon him suddenly, surprisingly, shockingly, okay? Um, and let me add one more thing. In the book of Isaiah, God makes his ability to bring about the future and speak about it in advance a defining demonstration of his divinity. 
He says, you want to know that I am the true and living God and the only God? I am the one, in the words of Isaiah, who declares the end from the beginning. Okay. So these things are significant for us. Uh, and we'll see in a second there's another reason so, but we're going to slug through this. Now, one mistake to make with biblical prophecy is to ignore it. It's in our Bible. It's there. We should deal with it. The other mistake is to handle it wrongly. Okay. And what happens uh, oftentimes, and the church background I come from, Calvary Chapel, is prone to this mistake, uh, is there's such a deep study of these things that the only byproduct of it is more deep study. And so there's prophecy conferences, and that just leads to another prophecy conference. Jesus gives us the simple application of these things the first time he ever talks about it, and he says, therefore, study it deeper. No. He says, therefore, watch and work. And so if we come at trying to understand these things in a way that isolates us from the mission of the church, if we come to understand these things in a way that drives us deeper into these things, if we come to understand these things in a way that leads us to despair or insanity, we're doing it wrong, okay? And so we're not going to dig terribly deep in these things. I promise you, if you stick around this church for the next seven years, we will do so. Uh, but our goal in Daniel, as you may remember, as we've been talking about earthly empires and the coming king, our goal is to look at this idea of the kingdom of God in the context of human empires. And specifically, the king himself, Jesus Christ. And so we'll see how that plays out this morning. So... Daniel chapter 7, before we pray and look into it, I just want to read the first eight verses together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and its dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in broken pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that speaks great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Let's stop there and pray. God, your own word through Paul to Timothy says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us. Your own word through the mouth of Peter says that no prophecy was given of individual interpretation, but the prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at these words, Lord, we, we want to come at them uh, asking, okay, what are you saying to us, Lord? I ask God that on that basis and on the fact that you are the God who hears our questions and gives answers, that you would speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Not to spoil anything, but this vision that Daniel has is about the sum total of history. 
It's about from the days of Daniel looking forward where everything is going. And in fact, we're going to see this over and over again as we move through the book. It is a broad vision that sees all the way to the end. But it's not just, it's not just future tense biography. It's not just, just in case you know where we're going, or just in case you don't know where we're going, I'll tell you. It's not directions, instructional. It's not, here's where we need to get to, and God lays out our marching orders, and then we march there. It is about the meaning of history. It is about what everything is about, where things are going. Okay? Now, classically, there's been a few different views of how to understand history. And remember that this is a challenging question for all human beings because we all live in the middle. Right? We don't know the end yet. There's still time for a Shyamalan-style shocker, right? a twist at the end of Christian history. Uh, at the end of secular history, at the end of history in general, all of us have to go, what does life mean? And we do that in the context of an unfinished life, in the context of an unfinished story we call history, okay? But there's been some classic presentations, okay? So, for example, there is the, um, there is the trajectory view of history, and there's two versions of this, an optimistic and a pessimistic one. The optimistic one says, here's where we're at, there's the barbarism where we were, and we're headed to utopia, right? We're marching, we're moving forward, always onward and upwards, always improving, always better, okay? There's another trajectory, though, that says, yes, we're moving, constantly moving, but it's sliding down a slippery slope, and its end is destruction, right? And so the basic premise here is, that whatever the end of humanity is going to be, it's going to be self-caused, and it's going to be a proof of concept, right? We're finally going to do it, push the big red button, end all of life, okay? Things are constantly getting worse. There's also the Eastern view that history is effectively like a giant wheel. It's cyclical. It just rolls around and around, unfinishing, unending, it's not just in the Eastern view, uh, this idea of reincarnation, it's this broader view of the fact that, uh, that there really is just a cycle, that we just go through the motions over and over again, that powers rise and fall and rise and fall. Um, and basically, we get three different views of the meaning of history then. Comedy, boop, tragedy, and meaningless, right? Those are basically the three philosophical concepts that we keep returning to. The Bible's is unique uh, in that it's somewhat of a tragicomedy, okay? Uh, it's, it effectively sees, as we'll see in this vision, things getting worse. But it's in the same way that the night gets darker and then the sun comes. In other words, I mentioned Shyamalan earlier. If the history of the world, according to the Bible, was a Hollywood film, it's one with a reveal. In fact, that's the whole idea behind apocalyptic literature. Now, I know in modern parlance, when we use the word apocalypse, we're always talking about like a zombie apocalypse or a nuclear apocalypse. There's no positive side to that. It's clearly on that downward slope trajectory where we finally do it. We bring about on ourselves... Uh, some sort of horror. But with the word apocalypsis, where we get it from, the Greek word, the one that we title the book of Revelation for means, is unveiling, a pulling back the veil, okay? It's, it's the twist. The biblical understanding of history comes with a twist. It tells the story of mankind being not just left unto its own devices, but also in a very significant sense, standing against the God who made it, and then a surprise ending. And that's why we need revelation. It's a pulling back the veil that says, hey, you don't get this now. Now, for most of us, a twist is a rather satisfying thing, and I just want to point out something very quickly. Uh, studies show that we are most satisfied with the ending of a movie if we guess the ending moments before it's revealed. Okay. If we don't see it coming at all, it leaves us kind of dissatisfied. If we see it from the beginning, it bothers us entirely. 
But that's, that's the rhythm that we look for where it's like, oh my gosh, he's actually dead, and then you find it out, right? That's what we're looking for, okay? But I want you to notice something else about this whole idea of a reveal, of a surprise ending. Once you know the ending, it changes the way you view the movie. That's where the satisfaction comes from. Suddenly you're piecing together these things and everything you thought you knew, you now know differently. That's why we rewatch, re, we rewatch these films because that ending changes the story. That's the purpose of this stuff, okay? It's, it's not about building a bunker and filling it with food. It's, it's not about um, some sort of escapism or desperation. It's about meaning. Actors often ask, what is my motivation? Right? They're trying to step outside the story that they're telling and say, okay, what's driving me in this? What's moving me? That's what this idea of apocalypse is about. So, with that being said, this is actually tremendously practical because here's what the human condition is like. We're all acting out a movie for a script we haven't finished reading. We all have to ask, what is my motivation? You may not be acting out of character with yourself, but like Anna shared this morning, you could be very well acting out of character with reality. That's what these things are about. And so Daniel here, he has this vision. And speaking of movies, I think the best comparison here is like that, that film from a few years ago. I'm not even going to talk about the sequel. Don't ask me to. Uh, Pacific Rim. Right? There's basically just this giant aquatic battle, this Godzilla-style vision he has where these beasts are rising up out of the ocean, massive scale, and fighting one another. He sees four of them, okay? Uh, the first he sees uh, is a lion, but not just any old lion, a lion with wings. In fact, I'll try and point these out as we go along, but there are earmarks to apocalyptic literature. Remember that we're reading a genre of literature here, and so there's things that define it. In the same way that a letter is different than a narrative, okay, Apocalypse has some traits. One of them is esoteric imagery. Okay? In other words, in prophecy, in, in normal visions, you'll find things like baskets of fruit or brooms or things like that. In apocalyptic stuff, you find mythical things. You find dragons. You find animals that are an amalgam of other animals. You find mythical pictures. And so this isn't just a lion, is it? It's a lion with wings. Okay? And we see as this lion uh, is standing there, his wings are plucked, he's given the heart of the man, and that's the end of the first animal. The second one is like a bear, but he's a deformed bear. He's raised up on one side, and in his mouth, uh, he's been eating ribs, and they're stuck in his teeth, three of them, okay? The third one's like a leopard, but he's got four heads and four wings, okay? Uh, and then the last one, we're not told here what kind of animal it is, Daniel can't identify it. He just calls it another beast different from all the rest and then basically describes it as being horrible. In fact, it's so horrible that its teeth are not just sharp or even iron-like. They are iron. Okay? And so the last one is monstrous. And so he sees all of this happen and then the last part of the vision is all of a sudden we get a shift in setting. Here we're looking at the sea and these, these animals duking it out now we move into heaven and it says that thrones are set up and a book of judgment is open and all of humanity stands before the judge, right? We move all the way to the end of the story, okay? Now, uh, let's keep reading here in verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, now remember this horn? So on this last beast, there are ten horns, and then three of them are displaced by this little horn. And we're going to see in a second that, that particular happening right there. That's what bothers Daniel most about this vision. Okay? And so he looks, and because of the words that this horn was speaking as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So we get one last distinction here between the beasts. The first three have continuity 
They kind of fade out. They move forward. The last one, we have an, a total end. Okay? The final beast, there isn't anything that takes over and moves forward and integrates. There's none of that. It's just destruction. Okay? And then notice in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. Okay, and so here's this throne room set up, and then he sees one coming like the son of man on the clouds to the ancient of days. Now, clearly that title is one for God, and it's not hard to understand its significance here. Okay, the ancient of days means pre-existent. So one of the differences we see between these beasts and this throne room is that this has always been here. It's coexistent with every one of the beasts. It predates the beasts. It's always been there. It's the ancient of days. And there's this one, like the Son of Man in verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you hear all the contrast there? Uh, once again, we're talking about empires. We'll get to that in a second. All of these beasts are kingdoms of men. But here comes one, and he comes right into the throne room of heaven, is given a kingdom. It's more glorious than the rest. It's more universal than the rest, and it's more eternal than the rest, and it will never end. It will not be destroyed. Okay, do you get the contrast there? This is the revelation. This is the apocalypse. This is the surprise ending. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of all things. Now, this is a second trait of apocalyptic literature, angelic interpretation. Okay? So think of the book of Revelation if you've ever read it. Okay? John sees all these things. And then oftentimes, an angel next to him will go, do you understand the things you're seeing? Or John will turn to a bystander and go, what do these things mean? Okay, that's a consistent trait of apocalyptic literature. Not just inside the Bible, but outside, because there are some non-biblical apocalypses, although I would all say they're trying to emulate Daniel. Daniel is the earliest, okay? Um, in fact, most of them play with this vision right here somewhere in their apocalypse, okay? Um, so... He asks for an interpretation. Now, this is helpful for us because what do we like to do with symbolism and imagery? We like to shape it in whatever way makes sense to us. It's like those magic eye books if you can't actually do them. You're just guessing. You're like, I'm pretty sure it's a clown. It's a clown, right? Uh, but here, interpretation is given to give us guidelines. Now, it's not specific. It doesn't give us all the details, but it gives us a sufficient amount of understanding. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kingdoms who shall arise out of the earth. Okay. And so he says, these four beasts represent four kingdoms that shall arise. Now, that gives us some traction with other things in the book of Daniel. You may remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he dreams of a statue in four parts, gold, silver, bronze, and iron mixed with clay. Head, chest, uh, and torso, legs, and feet, right? Uh, clearly, there's some simultaneousness here. There's some overlap between these things. But I want you to notice how different those two pictures are. Okay, to understand this, you have to have a broad understanding of how the Bible views humanity. What is the first command that is given to humanity in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply so that you will have dominion over all the earth. In fact, most scholars believe when the Bible says that God created us in his image, that that idea there is one of vice regency, okay? That's in the Eastern world, in the ancient world, that's what an image was. It was a representation of authority, okay? And so we effectively, as human beings, were to rule on God's behalf. Read Psalm 2. You've made us a little lower than the angels and given us dominion over all these things, okay? So that's, that's the plan. That's the trajectory. That's 
the purpose of mankind, but a chapter labor, everything goes sideways. Instead of Adam and Eve choosing to have dominion on God's behalf, they want the throne. Okay. Now, if you can understand those things, you will understand all of psychology. You will suddenly understand the human condition as a whole. Okay. That we make ourselves independent from God. That we want to determine our own reality. That we want to pursue our own glory. All of these things. Um, and so... Here's what's different, though, in these two things. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, it's a big statue. It's an image. It's human. And to some degree, it's pretty impressive. It has a head of gold. And then as it goes down, it deteriorates. It's not good engineering, right? Because at the bottom, there's this weak link in the chain, the place where the most structure is needed. You have clay intermixed with iron. But overall, it's got its glory, it's got its impressiveness, it's got its dignity. And if there was an idea of, the, of mankind representing God, the statue serves, here we have a totally different thing. Same duration of history, same as we'll see, four kingdoms. But here they're animals. They're subhuman. They're devouring and destructive. Okay. Now, this is true of what we experience in government. This is true of what we experience in any power structure with human beings. At its best, it is dignified. It recognizes that we are created in the image of God. It reflects God's goodness, power, and authority. And at worst, it's subhuman. C.S. Lewis, in, um, in one of his sermons called The Weight of Glory, talks about the fact that we're never bothered when animals behave like animals. Right? We can be frustrated because they did a dog-like thing, but we don't feel like they're falling short of who they should really be. But how often do we define when humans fall short in animalistic terms? Okay. We're recognizing there's something unique about humanity, and that doesn't justify their bad behavior. In some sense, it makes it worse. We're not, if you will, living up to our collective destiny. Okay. That's what we see here. We see subhuman. We see destructive and terrible and horrible. In fact, terrible and horrible, those are the ways that Daniel describes this vision. It's an awful thing. We see it in the New Testament as well. And so in Romans 13, respect the government. Serve the government. Obey the government. In Revelation 13, the government is a whore that is drunk on the bloods of those it devours. Which is it? It's both. We as Americans need to recognize the difference between love for our nation and nationalism. Love for our nation is just like love for our spouse or our best friend. It's love that cares about the flaws we see and want to change them. Nationalism is blind to those things. It is a deification of country that says we and we alone are the one, the true, those deserving of dignity, those who have it right, etc. We get the balance in scripture. But what are these four kingdoms? We saw with Nebuchadnezzar, it was his kingdom and the three that would follow after that. And here we see the same thing. We see four kingdoms. In fact, they're relatively easy to identify. Okay? And so notice that this lion with wings, the wings are removed and he's given the heart of a man. Okay? Now, if you're familiar with the story of Nebuchadnezzar, that's one of the unique traits of what we've already read is there's an occasion where Nebuchadnezzar, his heart is lifted up and he looks at Babylon and he says, look at this great thing that I've built. This is eternal. This is forever. And instantly God drives him insane and he loses all of his humanity, eats grass like an animal. And for a short period of time, has just lost his mind. And then his sanity is given back to him. And he becomes a worshiper of the true and living God. Do you see how that parallels what we're talking about here? If we needed anything else, winged lions was a primary icon for the kingdom of Babylon. You can go to the British Museum of History and see Babylonian winged lions. Okay? Uh, the next one we see is like a bear and it's raised up on one side. Now, here's a really good tool for interpreting the Bible in general. The Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture interprets scripture. So if you just keep reading in chapter 8, he has another vision, this time not of four animals, but of two. 
But the first one he sees is a ram with two horns, one longer than the other. Here we have a bear with two sides, one higher than the other. Next, we have a leopard with four heads. In chapter 8, following the ram is a goat with four horns. Okay? There, there's similarities here that are intentional. More details, different perspective. Okay? Um, but nonetheless, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the one that we just read about in Daniel. If you notice here in chapter 7, verse 1, he had this vision not chronologically after chapter 6, but between chapters 4 and 5 during the rule of Belshazzar, before Babylon is sacked, okay? And so he's in the first kingdom. He sees the second kingdom coming like a bear with three ribs in his mouth, which most commentators believe are the three great powers that the medial Persians conquered, Libya, Egypt, and Babylon, okay? And then following that is a third kingdom. Now, side note, as soon as we get to this third kingdom, we get well beyond the life of Daniel himself, Daniel serves Babylon. He serves Medo-Persia, and then he dies of old age. But this third one he sees, uh, will be told in chapter 8, is Greece. Okay? He's a leopard covered in wings. If you know the story of Alexander the Great, he doesn't just conquer the Medo-Persian Empire, but gets all the way to India in 12 years. At the age of 30, he sits down and he weeps because there's no more world to conquer. How do you feel as a 33-year-old? Feel good about your life? So it's swift. It's a leopard and it's a winged leopard. But he died drunk, probably on his own vomit at an early age, probably because of depression because there was nothing left to do. And so his empire was divided uh, between his four senior generals. Okay. So we have a leopard with four head, or in chapter 8, we have a goat, or excuse me, a, a ram with one horn, it's broken off, and four grows in its place. This is the death of Alexander and the dividing of the kingdom, okay? And then there's this last kingdom, and it's different than all the rest. It's not merely animalistic, it's demonic. There's something significantly worse, and whereas the other ones are devouring, this is trampling, Okay? And so this brings us to the Roman Empire. But consistently when we read the Bible and it talks about Rome, we have the beginnings of Rome, and then there's this category that goes beyond what Rome ever was. And so it mentions here these ten horns, which we'll find out in a second, are ten kingdoms, ten kings that grow up out of the Roman Empire. But they're they're consecutive to one another. Or excuse me, they're not consecutive, they're contemporary to one another. And then three of them are destroyed and then we have this little horn coming up. That's not how Rome worked. You guys know how Rome worked, right? Emperor after emperor after emperor, okay? There was never a time where it was ruled by 10. Uh, On top of that, both both Jesus and John, the apostle, pick up on these things and although they're living in the context of the Roman Empire, look forward and say, Keep a lookout. These things are coming. Effectively here, we see this empire that the roots are laid in Rome, but the structure continues until something else happens. And I want you to notice that it makes very clear in this vision, doesn't it, that when Rome is destroyed, what happens? The kingdom of God is present, eternal, powerful. There's no going back. There's no other things, right? In other words, this spans from the days of Daniel to the end of time. That's the story that we're reading here. So, the first thing I want you to keep in mind here is that unlike Daniel, who is living in one of these kingdoms when he receives this vision, will live to see the beginning of the second one, a good deal of this we can look back. We see not as prophecy, but as history. Okay? It's significant. In fact, it's so significant that a large constituency of so-called critical scholars who believe that prophecy is impossible, who can tell the future, is convinced that Daniel must have been written later. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to hit the most boring chapter in the Bible unless you're an archaeologist and a historian. And then it's fascinating because he covers the most detailed part of history during the Greek kingdom, which he was not alive for. Okay? Now, there's a couple of reasons why we know that Daniel predates 
the second century BC. This is sixth century, that's Babylon, so 400 years. Okay, first off, Ezekiel, nobody questions the writing of Ezekiel, mentions Daniel by name. Okay, he's familiar with Daniel. Second, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that became the scriptures that Jesus used and everybody was familiar with in the first century, it was basically collected and codified during the second. For Daniel to be recognized as scripture in time to be translated, it must predate that by at least a few generations. Okay. But, but I want you to recognize that even the critical scholars, the primary reason they date this book later is because it's so freaking accurate in its history. That's not really good criticism. They, they have a presupposition there that says prophecy is not possible. Let me point out one other thing. Okay. All of the prophetic books in the Bible are organized the same way. Prophecies during the lifetime of the prophet that came true, prophecies that speak of things later. And the reason is because this is what it says in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy it says, when a prophet comes, if his words don't come to pass, don't fear him. Do you see how impossible that is if I stand up and I say in the year 2075 there's going to be a comet? It's easy for me to say I won't be here, right? And so we see this arrangement intentionally in the books of prophecy in the Old Testament, contemporary prophecies that came true, looking way beyond. We see it in Isaiah, we see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Daniel. And so Daniel, on the night of the destruction of the Babylon Empire, Babylon Empire he calls it. He says, yeah, the Median Persians, they're at your gates. This is over tonight, right? Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, here's what's coming. But in the second half of the book, it looks way beyond these things, okay? Now, don't, don't let me lose you. Let's, let's think for a second about, about the meaning here. Why does this vision matter at all to Daniel? Okay, there's a pragmatic side. God has given promises to Israel and they look further away from coming true than they ever have. And so there's a pragmatic, okay, so here we are stranded in Babylon. Jeremiah tells us we're going to be here for 70 years. But how do we get back to being in a place? And God basically says, well, I have bad news. You're going to get in that place because Babylon's going to be conquered and you won't be the conquerors. And then Medio Persia is going to be conquered and you won't be the conquerors. And by the time we get to the coming of Jesus, we have a, th a third kingdom, Rome, and you're under the thumb of Rome. That's why there's centurions on every page of the Gospels, right? It's not the story that they expected. God is doing something different. And so there's a looking beyond these things, a moving through all history, and a pulling back of the curtain. In Babylon, God's plan is faithful and will come to pass. In Medo-Persia, God is still on track and moving towards the end. Even in Rome, when things are terrible, when it says here that there is oppression against the saints and a wearying of them, in other words, a constant pressure, God is still on the throne, his plan is intact, it's moving forward. Daniel needs to understand this for the same reason we do. It's because as, a, as, as human beings, we're prone, kind of like Nick said last week, to despair and distraction to being so content and comfortable in life that we just decide to play with our toys, to pursue comforts that don't last, uh, to, to settle. Or sometimes things are so hard that we despair. Having that ending in view, this setting up, this reality of judgment, and this one who receives all the kingdoms in the story, Jesus says of the Old Testament to his own contemporaries, this book is all about me. I am its main character. Every page points to me. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is the meaning of history. This is the crisis point. It's the climax when Jesus receives the kingdom. What do the gospels say that Jesus went around Judea and Samaria and Galilee doing? Preaching the kingdom of God. And if you read closely, preaching himself as the king. And so he takes this imagery specifically and during the trial for his death they're saying, what do you say about yourself? 
He says, I tell you the truth, that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. Sound familiar? It's Daniel 7. And that's when they've had enough, and they go, that is blasphemy. You see yourself as somehow divine. God himself coming on the clouds is significant imagery, and that's why they put him to death. This is how Jesus self-identifies. This is the trajectory of Jesus' destiny. It's where history is going. Okay. Now, one of the reasons why this is important, because it, knowing the end forces you to read the Gospels differently. This is why the disciples have such a hard time. They're like, we know you're the Messiah. We know this ends in a throne. When we get to Jerusalem, can we have one too? And he says, no, you don't understand. There's a detour here. It's a crucifixion. It's a death. It's doesn't make any sense. It's irreconcilable. How is, he the anci- or how is he standing for the ancient of days to get an eternal kingdom coming on the clouds and yet completely forsaken by his own, hung on a Roman instrument of death, crying out to God and dying? See, there's more to the story than Daniel tells here, but it sets the trajectory. It sets where things are going. And there's a few places where Jesus uses that phrase, son of man, that will blow your mind if you see this picture in your head. Here's one in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he's encouraging the church to pursue serving one another instead of lording over one another. And he says, even the son of man did not come to be served. Were you reading with me? Did you hear what it says here in verse 14? To him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And he says, I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then my all-time favorite is in John chapter 13. It doesn't use the phrase son of man there, but it does keep this idea in mind. This is what it says. Now Jesus, after supper, knowing who he was and where he was going, got up, stripped down, wrapped himself in a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. That's the Son of Man doing that. That's the one to whom all kingdoms and power and glory are given. That's the one whose eternal destiny is at the top of the divine food chain, with all kingdoms falling before him, and all people on their knees confessing him as Lord. And he kneels down on his knees, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. It's almost like a double twist. Jesus is a king greater than Nebuchadnezzar, but completely different than any king you've ever read about. One who's not just powerful, but truly and totally good. It's this double understanding of the sovereign plan of history and the demonstration of God's goodness and love on the cross that shapes the church's constant cry, come Lord Jesus. Have you read the book of Revelation? Do you think the early church was chomping at the bit, going, all right, I'm so excited for the things in that book. Even when John receives them, you know what he says? He says, even still come Lord Jesus. When Daniel sees this vision, he's troubled. He's bothered by it. He's not excited about, you know, all sorts of people being devastated by destruction and war and an abusive, demonic authority power, it's horrible. But there's a twist. It's a comedy in the midst of the tragedy. There's a somberness to here, but there's a hope. There's a darkness, but the darker it gets, the closer dawn draws. That's what's going on here. And so he goes on. And he asked specifically about the fourth kingdom, verse 19, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on his head and the other horn that came up, which three of them fell. The horn had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things, and it seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Notice here, this isn't just a story about Jesus taking the kingdom, but his subjects, the saints possessing the kingdom as well. But right before that is oppressive government, severe persecution, 
And these are the things that Jesus says are coming for his church. These are the things that John says are coming for the church. Okay. Then verse 23, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different than the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He'll speak words against the Most High, will wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That phrase is one that's repeated here, later in Daniel, across the book of Revelation in different ways. Sometimes it's given in days, sometimes it's given in months, here it's given in years, three and a half years. Okay, It gets relatively specific, doesn't it? We're not going to unpack this now because we got the rest of Daniel later, and uh, effectively the book of Daniel oper operates like a microscope. We're on the 10-time zoom now. Pretty soon we're going to turn the crank and move into the 50-time zoom and take a closer look, so we're not going to do it twice. But nonetheless, he sees horrors coming, and specifically horrors for those who are faithful to God. And then, verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion... And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and dominion shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. Why does this matter for us? Okay. There was an interesting difficulty in making the Harry Potter films. And here's what it was. When they started making them, the books weren't finished being written. The author, J.K. Rowling, had known that she had seven books in mind. She knew where the story was going. She was going to get to the end, but the movies they started making before she'd written the last two books. And that's a difficult thing because, because uh, the movie is putting on screen things that are going to have to maintain continuity, right? So one of the things she did is for all the directors, she drew a map of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry so that they would lay it out right the first time, even if there were places she hadn't introduced yet that they'd never heard of, so that they'd have a place to be and things wouldn't change. But if you haven't read the stories or if you haven't watched the films, there's a reveal. There's a surprise. And it has to do with a particular character, Professor Snape. Alan Rickman, the actor, he had the most difficult job of all because there were details to his motivation that hadn't been written yet, that nobody knew because the story hadn't been told. And you look at him and he's this possible villain the whole time, has a hatred for the main character, Harry, and you don't know why. Seems to be a double agent working for the evil forces at work and then you get to the end of the book and you discover that he has an eternal love for Harry's mother and then underlying every action he's ever taken. And so it's this beautiful scene where he's, where he's talking with the headmaster and he goes, have you grown affectionate for Harry? Why do you suddenly care about his fate? And he goes, the boy, no. And he does this thing he does this spell, and it recalls Harry's mother. And Dumbledore goes, still the affection? And he says, always. It's the driving force. It's the motivation for every decision. But here's the thing. Those words hadn't been written when Alan Rickman was acting in film one, film two, film three. And so J.K. Rowling pulled him aside and said, look, I need to tell you something. She pulled back the curtain. She said, here's what's going on. Here's the hidden part. Here's your motivation. And if you go back and you watch the films, you see it. You see it even in Rickman's performance, the last great performance of his life as an actor. There's complexity there that he's working towards because he knows what no one else knows. Let me just give you one demonstration of what this looks like when the church gets it right. It looks confusing. It makes people looking around go, wait, what? There's tremendous failure, and the church goes, 
Okay, let's keep moving. There's terrible threats, and the church is not worried. There is a somber reality that doesn't get caught up in settling for the worship of lesser things. But ultimately, underlying all of it is a tremendous hope that mankind and even demon kind, as we see here in the book of Daniel, can throw all they want, every weapon of warfare at the kingdom of God, but the end is already determined. And we know it ends in victory. Let's pray. God, everyone in this room asks daily when they get up with every decision they make, with every goal they set, with every place that involves motion and trajectory and uh, movement in their life, has to say, where is this going? What is this for? And the Bible makes the great proclamation that the climax of human history is around one like the Son of Man, God become flesh, Jesus Christ, who not only is the one worthy to rule and reign, is not only the Lion of Judah, but also the Lamb that was slain. It's not only the King who reigns over us, but the King who reigns for us. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us the words of Peter, that these prophetic words are a sure so that if we meditate on them, in the midst of darkness, the day will dawn and the light now can shine in our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for having goals that are too small, for compromises that are too big, for worshiping things that are so unworthy for ambitions that fall short of what you're actually doing in history. And Daniel looked at these things and he was terrified. But we know more of the story, Lord. We know that the Son of Man was also the Son of God who laid his life down for us, who died for the world that opposes him. whose kingdom is here now, even though that it's coming. And the invitation stands wide open. Enter into my gates. Become not just my subjects, but my family. With the slate wiped clean. With everything forgiven. With the filling of the Holy Spirit to work in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure to take us from being enemies of the kingdom of God and making us ambassadors. Transitioning people like Paul from still breathing threats against the church to carrying forth a message of forgiveness and salvation and goodness and the meaning of history. And the meaning is Christ reigns forever and ever. Amen.